Turn in your Bibles to Esther. I'm going to pray for us and uh, get us started. Lord God, I thank you so much uh, for this evening. Um, I thank you for uh, for these people, for for uh, my family in Christ here uh, that, that's uh, here tonight. Thank you that we can gather together. Thank you for your word, um, your perfect, infallible uh, word that you've given to us um, for our good, for our benefit. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, uh, you would help us tonight to understand uh, what you need us to understand about this book. Uh, God, that we would go away from here not only with uh, more um, head knowledge about uh, the book of Esther, but also that uh, uh, the lessons in it, uh, the truths that it reveals, uh, would also uh, soften our hearts, um, draw us closer to you, uh, that, that uh, we would be even changed as a result of this study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Book of Esther. So does everyone have a little uh, outline thing in the back there? Brett made a good amount of them. He had, it looks like he had high hopes for uh, the attendance tonight back there. Um, Book of Esther is the, okay, so so you got the little introductory, the basics there. Um, uh, it doesn't have the little title section because its title is Esther. And you can probably guess why it's named Esther. Uh, interesting, thing, it's, it's one of only two books uh, named after a woman. The other one is Ruth. Ruth. Good. And uh, Esther is uh, it's actually the, uh, the Persian word for star. That might be where she got. Esther is, um, if, if you read, how many people read it? Oh, good. Uh, it's a, it, it, if you didn't read it, you, you really should. It's just such a, uh, it's just such a great story. Uh, anyway, Esther is a Persian word for star. That might be where she got her, her name from. Uh, she has a different Hebrew name, which we'll uh, learn in a little bit when we look at the, the book. But um, uh, it also could be she could also Esther could also be named after she could have been gotten that that name from the Babylonian love goddess Ishtar. It's interesting, right? Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's true, yeah. Uh, and uh, it could be a variation of that uh, that just kind of shows how, how beautiful she was thought of. Um, the author of Esther, uh, we don't know for sure. We have no definitive author. Uh, Jewish tradition teaches us uh, that, that it was probably Mordecai, uh, who is a prominent character in the book. A lot of people also believe it could have been Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Uh, that, those things are true, too. It could have been in either of them. I think that Mordecai probably makes the most sense, uh, especially given his position by the end of the book. Um, whoever the author was, uh, what we know for sure is that they had a detailed knowledge of Persia, uh, the whole kingdom of Persia, uh, they, the palace that's in Susa, and, and they also had a pretty good knowledge of Hebrew culture. Uh, so, so Mordecai makes a lot of sense as the author, but it doesn't really matter. If we get to heaven, we find out it's some guy named Steve. I don't know. It, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> it doesn't, that doesn't destroy our, uh, doesn't destroy our faith in any way. Uh, in, in the end, though, it's, yeah, one of those things, not a big deal. 
the date. Um, so the events of the book, the events that take place in the book, take place between the years 483 and 473 BC. Um, and so, and, and so that's when the events take place. And the book seems to have been written probably shortly after uh, those events take place. Um, and, and the f for the purpose of uh, uh, recording the events that kind of lead to the uh, the observance of the Jewish holiday uh, Purim, which um, actually I don't know if you know that it's Purim, and there's one other. Jewish festival that, that that are the only two that aren't in Mosaic law. Do you know what the other one is? Hanukkah. Hanukkah, yeah, which isn't in the Bible anywhere. That took place uh, uh, post in that little 400 year between the Testament times. Uh, but yeah, so Purim is, uh, it, and it's still uh, celebrated today. Um, anyway, uh, <coughs> uh, we, we can also gather from the date uh, Asturias, all right. Hasuris. I, I, I really I, I listened. This is what I did. I Google Googled how to pronounce his name. And there's like six different YouTube videos. They all did it differently. So it's pretty embarrassing. Seminary degree failing there. Uh, but we know him through uh, we know him better in, in history as Xerxes, uh, the, the King Xer Persian King Xerxes. Uh, that's the same guy. Uh, we know he was assassinated in 465 BC. Um, and so there's a good chance that it seems like the event uh, that it was written after that time. Um, the latest possible date it could have been written, if you care about this, is 331 BC, because that's when Greece came in and uh, conquered Persia. And so it had to be written before that. Um, and so at this time, at this time these events are taking place, uh, the Babylonian captivity that, that uh, Judah has been in has kind of has technically ended. This is about 100 years or so after the exile took place. Um, and many Jews have already begun to return to Israel. The first uh, return was in 538 B.C. And then, uh, as we'll talk about, you'll find out next week, Ezra and Nehemiah, they lead the second return in 458 B.C. Uh, but the, the captivity has kind of ended, but there are still Jews who are, who are living um, in, uh, in this city in Susa, in, in the Persian Empire. Um, the purpose of the book, the purpose of the book uh, is this, uh, to understand this. While the physical seed of Abraham was not faithful to Yahweh, while the physical seed of Abraham was not faithful to Yahweh, they were still protected by God from Gentile attack. While the physical seed of Abraham was not faithful to Yahweh, they were still protected by God from Gentile attack. One more time, good. While the physical seed of Abraham was not faithful to Yahweh, they were still protected by God from Gentile attack. And the theme, um, the theme is really easy. The theme is really easy. It's just three words. Preservation through providence. Preservation through providence. And we'll see that theme unpacked throughout this book. 
All right, and the outline, there's a really simple outline right there for you uh, on your papers. Uh, chapters 1 through 4 has to do with the threat to the Jews. So there's this threat that's, that's mounting. Uh, that threatens the livelihood and, the, in fact, the existence of all the Jewish community in Susa. And 5 through 10 is the triumph of the Jews, uh, how, they, uh, how they, through God, uh, are able to overcome the threat. Um, and then, it, just so you know, on the back of your little uh, papers here, there's a nice little, uh, there's kind of a, like a more detailed kind of structure of the book, a different kind of outline. You can see there, uh, there's the, another way to section off, another way to outline this would be uh, 1-1 through 2-18 is, shows uh, Vashti to Esther, Queen Vashti to Queen Esther. Um, 2-19 to 7-10 shows the transition from, from Haman to Mordecai. And then 8-1 through 10-3 shows the transition from calamity, what looked like a huge problem that was about to happen to good for the Jews, to good things happening for the Jews. And you can see, like, in each section, there's a royal edict, and there's two feasts. There's a, there's a, a really obvious structure with the edicts and the feasts that take place in each of those sections. So that's kind of a good, helpful resource to have. <clears throat> All right, so if you didn't read the book this week you should have and that you're just it's not going to be as good but let's go through i want to do a real quick review of what goes on it's just just a great story i would think that even if you're not you weren't a christian and you didn't think anything of the bible this is just an enjoyable story to read anyway it's it's just fun um, so so what, what's going on here is that uh, many Jews have not returned to Israel, Israel, Israel yet, even though the, the edict is in place and they can start going back. This book is about a Jewish community living in Susa. And Susa is one of the capital cities in Persia. They had like four different capital cities. Uh, this was one of them. Um, so we have at the beginning, in the first chapter, we see the king throwing these uh, this huge, elaborate banquet that lasts for 180 days where basically he's just glorifying himself and showing off to all the people how wonderful, how special, how important he is. And the way he, and the way he ends that banquet is to have an additional seven-day banquet, uh, just kind of emphasizing that even more. So you see that in chapter one, just to show off his splendor, to show off how great he is. And on the last day, uh, while he's drinking, that's a theme in the book also, is he He's drinking. The king Xerxes is drunk a lot. Um, probably uh, leads to a lot of his decision making. Um, so on the last day, he drunkenly demands for uh, his queen Vashti to to come forward and to show off her beauty in front of all of the guests. Uh, essentially, it's like one more way of showing of him showing himself off is to show off how beautiful and wonderful this queen of his is. And so uh, he, he has he calls for her to come, but she refuses to come. And that makes the king upset. And so he has her removed from her position as queen. And instead of having her as queen, he holds essentially a competition or, or, a, or a beauty pageant, it's always called. And he has all of these 
other, all the virgins coming forth from around the, the country, around Susa, uh, to, to before him. And uh, they spend a year of time, a year, being prepared like cosmetically and just to go before the king. And in the end, he chooses Esther over all of the other women and she becomes queen. And Esther is, uh, Esther is uh, a Jew and is kind of hidden from him. He doesn't know that, 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 uh, that, He's a or that she's a Jew at the time, and she's been uh, she's been taken care of by her <coughs> uncle Mordecai. So something's happened to her parents. Uh, we don't exactly know what happened to her parents, but she's being taken care of by her uncle Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai um, knows and sees her go, and 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 she wins this competition type of thing, becomes the queen, and uh, and. While she's queen, right away, early, uh, early on in the, in the book, at the end of chapter two, we see Mordecai, who has some sort of position in the government. We don't exactly know what, but but he's before the king's gate. He overhears a plot to murder the king by two of the king's eunuchs, um, and we don't know why they want to kill him. Uh, it could be because eunuchs were the ones that typically worked with, with the queen, so they might have been ups, they might have liked Vashti and they're upset about the whole thing. But anyway, Mordecai hears this plot uh, that's, being, uh, that's being made, and he goes and tells Esther. <laughs> Esther tells the king. The king has the, the thing investigated, finds out that it's true, and Mordecai uh, gets credit, uh, but not rewarded yet. That's important. Uh, credit for uh, discovering this plot. All right, and then, so, so that happens. So that's important to know that that happened. And then it goes up to chapter three, and we see uh, this man, Haman. Haman the Agagite ends up being raised up by the king, by Xerxes, to become the most powerful person other than the king in the, in, in the land. And he, the king commands that all people are to kneel before him and give and pay homage to him whenever he is around. And Mordecai refuses to do this. Mordecai refuses to do this. And, and this makes Haman angry. And Haman finds out he's Jewish. And in, 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 in also in chapter 3, then we see Haman convincing the king to enact this decree that will allow Haman to, to raise these men and annihilate the Jews on a certain date. And the way he chooses the date is by rolling dice, which is the, the Jewish word for them. Probably not the same as our type of dice, but uh, uh, like casting lots sort of thing. Roll, rolls them, and the date that, that he chooses by pure luck uh, is is uh, pure luck. That's I say it like that with quotes. Um, uh, is the thirteenth of Adar. So it's Adar Adar. It's eleven months after this time when they when they uh, are having this meeting. So so the Jewish word for dice is, is pure P U R. That's where the Purim. That's where that uh, feast. The name of that feast comes from. And so uh, Esther and Mordecai find out about this and they make a plan essentially to reveal Esther's identity and to get the king to reverse his decree. 
Um, but then here's the, bit, the the issue: going before the king without being summoned in in Persian culture is a crime that can be penalized by death. That, it seems like a big deal. Uh, do, so you're not supposed to do that, and that's where. And so you look in, and we'll read. Actually, let's look at four fourteen through sixteen, because that's kind of the key, one of the key texts in this whole book. We see Mordecai talking to Esther. Actually, let's go to 13. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to, to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So we see that in that, in that part, you see their plan coming to, to fruition. They're going to go before the king and tell him, uh, what's going on? So, but, so, so Esther goes before the king. The king ex- extends the staff to her, saying you know, that so she doesn't have to die, and he agrees to to listen to her. And Esther's demands, instead of saying at the time what exactly she wants, she she says, "Well, if if it pleases you, you and Haman." Come and I'm going to hold a banquet for you. And so Esther has this banquet for the king and Haman. And at the end, and at the end of the banquet, Haman and the king love it so much. Haman says, "What? What do you want, Esther? Oh, we'll, we'll do it for you." And and she says, "Well, let me have an, uh, tomorrow. I'd like you both to come back to another banquet, and then I'll, I'll tell you more." So so Haman leaves the banquet and he's happy. He feels honored. And, but as he's on his way out, he sees Mordecai, and, and that makes him mad again. And he goes home, and he talks to his, his wife and his friends, and, and he, he essentially says, what good is all of this other stuff I have? I don't even care. He essentially says, I don't even care about all of, my, all of the things I have, all of the honor I have, as long as Mordecai is alive and doing this to me. That's, that's all he can think about. He's vindictive. He just hates him. Um, and so uh, what his, the advice of his wife and his friends is build, have a gallows built, which is essentially 75 feet tall, and, 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 and have Mordecai uh, killed on it. And a gallows, when it says gallows, we think of like hanging, right? That's what we, but, but that's not what it meant. It was actually like a pole that you're impaled on. So it's not not being hung like normal. Um, yeah, it's a, so he's, they're, he's building this giant. As, yeah, yeah, like a big shish kebab. There you go. Um, uh, and so yeah, so it's but but yeah, that's essentially the idea is he wants Mordecai up, way high up in the air, impaled and dead. And just and, and the idea is that it's an embarrassment, so so everyone can see, and it's it's an embarrassment to, to everyone around. This person's been put to death, um, up in the air, just on display for everyone. So they talk, they say that uh, that's what you should. Uh, so build this gallows, and 
have Mordecai killed on that. And, more, and, and Haman likes that idea, and he has the, the gallows built. And that's exciting for him. And so, uh, so the next day, so, so then we see this. And, and then that night, that night that Haman's having this idea, Haman and his wife and his friends, the king can't sleep. And so he asks someone to go, go and get the book of records to be read to him. And he remembers, as, as the book of records is being read to him, uh, he, the story is read of how Mordecai had the, uh, found out about the plot to kill the king and essentially save the king's life. And the king is like, oh, what did, we never did anything for Mordecai. We never recognized him. Uh, we need to do something about that. So, so he wants to honor Mordecai for saving his life. And the next morning, as Haman is on his way to the king to tell him, to ask him to, to, to give him Mordecai, to impale him on this, this stick so that he can be displayed in front of everyone uh, as a laughing stock. Uh, while he's on his way to them, the king asks Mordecai, or the king asks Haman, like, uh, uh, what, what can we do to honor uh, what can I do to honor the person that I want to honor? Who the, king, who the king wants to honor? What should we do for him? And Haman comes in and, and he says, uh, he says, because uh, Haman thinks he's talking about him. And, and Haman said to himself, I'm, I'm in chapter 6, verse uh, 6, if you want to follow along. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, uh, and Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city. Proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horses of you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. <laughs> and then so in verse 11, you see now Haman is, as the most honored official, leading Mordecai throughout time. This is what for the, what the king wants to honor. So he spends his whole day doing that. And, and this is actually right there in chapter 6. That's like the pivot point for the, for the whole book. That's the turning point. Uh, for the whole book. And then, because then he leaves that and he goes to Esther's second banquet. And, and that, that's the time where, where they, they both like the banquet again. And the king says, well, okay, Queen Esther, tell me now, what, what would you like me to do? And that's when Esther tells him, uh, we've, been, uh, we've been sold out, is essentially what she says. I think she says exactly that. Let's read it. Um, he says, uh, the, the queen, seven, chapter, chapter 7, verse 3, sorry. Then the queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus 
said to the queen, Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. <laughs> then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Um, so, so Esther says, All right, here, here's what happened. And the king has been drinking again. He walks <laughs> off and he's angry. It didn't, he was. And <laughs> he walks off, he's angry, and then as he's thinking about it, he comes back in and, and Haman has thrown himself on Esther begging for mercy, but the king sees it as he's, he's either attacking her or making a move on her or something, and then that's it for the king. He's, he's had enough of it. And, and, then, um, uh, and then chapter 7, verse 8, the king returned from the, pa the palace garden to the, to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the, uh, on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king says, Hang him on that. <laughs> so, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. So the king has Haman killed. Then the rest of the book is the king elevating Mordecai. Mordecai and tells him, you can make a decree. They, they find out that, that the decree that he passed earlier can't be revoked. So Mordecai authorizes a counter decree that allows the Jews to defend themselves and to kill all of the people who are coming, coming to kill them. And, and the king ends up... Uh, so, so they do that, so the, and it takes two days. There's a first day where they go after Haman's family and, and some of the, the Persian leaders, and then the second day where they go after everyone else who wants him dead, and that's, and that's where Purim is, the, the two-day festival that, where the Jewish people in Susa killed all of their enemies who were supposed to kill them. And Mordecai, at the end of the book, is, is elevated to second in command. So there's this... It's just, just, just this really interesting story with all of these, again, quotation, finger quotes, coincidences that happen. And so we, we talked about the theme being, the main theme being preservation through providence. And that leads <coughs> to our major themes. And the first major theme, and, and this is what's interesting, it's also the biggest kind of interpretive issue with Esther is that in the book of Esther, in all 10 chapters, there is no mention of God's name, not once. And the references for that is Esther 1 through 10. You look at it all. <laughs> no mention of God's name. And it's just when you think about it, this is just amazing because this is a book in the Bible. This is God's word. Um, it, it, it's... It's one of only, uh, in addition to that, it's one of uh, another issue that, that people have with it. It's only one, uh, it's one of the only four Old Testament books uh, that is never quoted from in the New Testament or even alluded to. There's only four. Uh, Esther, Song of Solomon, and I think Obadiah and Nahum. Um, and... Uh, it, it not, not only does it not mention God's name ever, but it never mentions 
Jerusalem, and it never mentions uh, Palestine or the Promised Land. It never mentions the Temple. It never mentions the Law. It never mentions worship. It doesn't even mention prayer, not not once. It does. It mentions uh, fasting. But not prayer, even though uh, even though the two are surely connected, it doesn't mention prayer. Um, and and that, that's kind of what's interesting about it is it, it, it almost goes out of its way not to mention God. Like places where it would be evident and obvious to put the, his name in. Right? It's like in the, in, in the verse 414. Uh, that when he says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Just so many ways you could have talked about God's providential care, God's promise to protect the Jewish people. All that, but he doesn't, doesn't mention it. Um, and, the, and, and what's interesting, the book is clearly organized in such a way, um, it, it's clearly organized, and just hopefully, even if you haven't read it, just going over that overview real quick, um, we're supposed to say that the, the way that these things unfold, it can't just be a coincidence. And we're supposed to see that. And, and so the, the question then is, why would the author do this? Why would the author do this? I, it's not rhetorical now. Why, I'm actually to the point where I'm asking questions. Why, why, what are some reasons why you think the author would purposely not mention the name of God? To show maybe how far the people had strayed from They're, acknowledging God. And there is some truth to that, and that's one of the things that, that we see in here is that um, it, it seems like at least the Jewish remnant in Susa is not very faithful. Um, they, they, they've, they've kind of fallen away from the, the commandments. Um, they're like, I mean, Esther's marrying a, you know, a Gentile. Um, they, they don't seem to be practicing any of the dietary Laws. It's not. It's it's way different than we see with Daniel and his friends, right? The Daniel, who's outspoken, uh, standing against the uh, uh, the king and that culture, um, and and sticking to his culture. This is this seems more mixed in. So there, yeah, some of that. Why else? Why would the author do this? The king is egotistical. He's not giving. God the glory. He's just 100%. Mm -hmm. It's about me. It does. Yeah, it, it definitely points to, uh, it, it helps highlight the king and how egotistical he is. In fact, the, king, the king's name and allusions to the king, are, there's over 175 of those in this 10 chapters. So, there, there, I mean, you definitely see, like, the king is mentioned that many times no mention of God from a, a God-fearing author. Why, why would that be? I, it seems that he's, even though he doesn't mention God, he obviously 
is talking about God's providence, even though he mm -hmm. doesn't mention God. And it's almost a picture of God working in the lives of his people, even though they don't acknowledge him. Yeah. God is still involved in their lives. He still has them as part of his plan. Yeah. And, and think of that. I think you're, you're right on, Lori, because think, think of the encouragement that that truth is. Um, when, yeah, go ahead, Lee. I was just going to add to what Lori said, that though God is not visibly present, there's no temple, there's no worship, there's mm -hmm. none of those kinds of things. His invisible hand is orchestrating all of the events. Yeah. And so uh, that's a good, that seems like a good lesson for us. God is visibly not present in much of our society, but he's still orchestrating events. Yeah, it, exactly. When he, he's not, he, when, even when he's not recognized, even when the people around aren't, aren't even, maybe aren't even giving him credit, He's still at work, and, and it's going to be a, a huge encouragement for, uh, I mean, it, for us, but also for the Jews at this time, because uh, one of the books that Exodus draws a lot of, uh, or that uh, Esther draws a lot of comparisons to is Exodus, because of the way uh, it's, uh, God saves his people out of the hands of a, of a foreign power, uh, God doing that, but um, but the way God does it in Exodus, how, do, how does God save his people in Exodus? How does he bring them out? He's, he's very present. Oh, yeah. He, he tells Moses about the burning bush. You know, Esther says, oh, yeah, who knows we're in for such a time as this? Mm -hmm. I, my first thought was Moses when she said that because such a time as this, Moses, here we go. Yeah. You know, very different. Yeah, God is very, I mean, and the, the, there's these plagues. Like, there was no doubt in the people in Egypt and in the Israelites, as they watched the plagues, as they saw the Red Sea parted, as they saw uh, the, uh, the smoke and the glory of God on top of Mount Sinai, I, God is doing something. God is with us. God is doing this. Um, it's, it's, it's very different than we see in Esther, and, and it makes sense for what's going on now in, in their time. So, so right here in the... Um, in the in, in the 550s or so BC, uh, Israel's been in exile for a hundred years, and now they're now they're starting to go back. But we're not seeing the miraculous hand of God doing things the, the way that He had in the past. Um, and in fact, that we're getting ready to to hit this time, and, and and we'll talk next week about Ezra. Nehemiah at that time, and there's a, a return to, to, to a right understanding of the Word of God, uh, and, and the temple's rebuilt, but there's a sense in which it, it doesn't have the same glory that it has before, and then, it, then there's this huge just c centuries of just nothing, like it doesn't, where it's just to the outside observer, it's like God isn't there. And he's, there's no, no more word from God, no more prophets. Um, it, it, it's just, just nothing going on. And, and so this, this is what's going to be going on for the Jewish people. They, they go back to their homeland, and, and it's just it's not like it was until Christ. Um, and it teaches, and so just... This whole understanding, the, the lesson in Esther, it just shows us that God, even in the mundane, um, is always, always absolutely at work in all the details of what seems like mundane 
who, what, what's going on here. God is still at work. God is still accomplishing his purposes. God is still accomplishing uh, his promises. So this, this not mentioning of this, this no mention of God is actually uh, like it's, it's a brilliant technique to kind of force you to look for God's activity, to see him at work, even when you don't have the Red Sea being parted sort of thing. Yeah. Is it one of those books that seems to be very um, similar to what's going on in our current modern day culture and, and world that we live in? Yeah. And that's, yeah, jump on what Lee said. And that's why I think Esther is such a good book for us to read too, um, because that is, uh, we can get that sense. Uh, we can get that feeling. Um, and, and, uh, and a lot of times, you know, we have these, you know, normal lives we live and we go day to day and like, what, what was the purpose of this today? What's the purpose of this thing happening? Uh, it just doesn't seem, uh, it just doesn't seem relevant or important or, seem, you know, th- that type of thing. And just this reinforcing of the idea that, no, no, it doesn't matter what it seems like. God is at work. God is still working. So a major theme, even though it's not in there, is is the absence of the name of God. That's the first major theme. Second major theme would be uh, the, the, the Jews. Uh, just the Jews in general. This is uh, the first place where we see the term Jews, like where it's shortened down to Jews. Um, it comes from, most likely the term is, it comes from the, the nation of Judah. Judah was the, the, so Israel's captured, when it's kingdom splits, Israel's captured by um, Assyria, and, and then later on Babylon captures Judah. And so it's probably shortened term of that. That's where Jews, the name Jews come from. But, but what we see in this is, again, um, Jews special. There's something special about them. There's a hatred for them, though, as a people. Still, like this is still going on. Hatred for the people uh, of God, the people that God uh, has chosen. There's this hatred for them. We see that in 3, 5, and 6. Um, let's look at when... when uh, uh, actually, look at four, two, and then five and six. So this is when Mordecai is not obeying the king's command to to uh, bow to Haman, and uh, the the king's servants come to him and they ask, "Why why are you transgressing the king's command?" And they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. And they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on, uh, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So, so uh, they they find that out. They. It, that it has to do with the fact that he's a, a Jew. That's the only thing that, that we, because we don't have any of words, Mordecai doesn't answer why he's not bowing down. All he told them was this, that he's a Jew. So that was the, the sufficient answer. Um, and we'll talk more about in a little bit uh, when we talk about the characters, about why uh, there, there's something really significant there. 
Um, so, so we see that. We, so we see the, the hatred of the Jews, and then we also see the deliverance of the Jews. It's just uh, God's people being, uh, and you can read about that in almost all of chapters 8 and 9, but 8-8 eight, eight specifically is where that edict is. Um, so, so the Jews is a second major theme. Third uh, major theme is a focus on the characters. So, so the third theme is the major characters of the book. Uh, the major characters. So the first is the king, Ahasuerus, or how would you guys say that? When you guys were reading this, how do you say it? Xerxes. Xerxes. There you go. Uh, we see him. Uh, we see Xerxes, and he is uh, self-centered. He's easily, easily influenced. He likes drinking, and uh, and it, he's not he, and he's and he's selfish he's kind of self-centered and he's all about himself um this story is so, so i was talking to my mom about this the other day and she said that a group of women from this church went and saw the movie one night with the king which is the the hollywood christian hollywood version of the story of Esther and it makes this big romantic story between Xerxes and and Esther and it's oh, it's just oh so bad that's not a love story it's not how loving it is they don't make like like anniversary cards that say you're my favorite among all the women that I sleep with. Right? There's nothing romantic about that. It's, but but she's, uh, it's the, no love story there. Um, and if there's, and that's what, that movie uh, is terrible because there's, when, if that's the case, if they're like madly in love, then there's no danger for Esther when she's going before the, before the king, um, it's, there's only danger there if this guy is really an unstable egomaniac like he is, um, and and that, so so Esther's in danger when she goes before him. So so uh, the king, major character Esther, of course, um, she's she's portrayed as uh, courageous. So that that line in four sixteen that just. I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. It's just so powerful. Uh, she's, she's courageous, and she's wise. The way you see the way she's got wisdom, the way she organizes um, the feasts. Uh, you see in uh, 5, 4 through 6, um, Haman uh, is completely letting his guard down. And you see him leave in, in 11 and 12 in chapter 5. He's, he's puffed up. Uh, he's excited. And then 7-4, uh, she, she humbles herself when she's telling the king. Uh, look, look over there at 7-4. Uh, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Um, so you see her, she's, she's really humbling herself before this, this guy who doesn't deserve to have her being this humble, but, but she's wise and knowing how to approach this, this man. Um, and then uh, in five and six, you see that because of the way she's done this, that Haman is complete, like he's, he's caught off guard. He, doesn't, he didn't see this coming. Um, 
he's taken off guard and 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 that's what leads to the to the fight because he's he's like surprised and he's throwing himself on on Esther trying to uh, trying to get mercy to plead for mercy and the king takes it the wrong way and and that's that's the final straw so we see Esther this courageous beautiful this wise woman um, and then we have Haman and Haman is uh, vindictive he's proud uh, in fact it's hard to right, it's hard to find a better example in the Bible of, of someone uh, who illustrates the truth that God opposes the proud than, than poor Haman uh, uh, so, so you, Haman and then you have Mordecai and the chief characteristic is his dedication to the people to his people um, and then but between Haman and Mordecai I, I want to point out this, this background because um, there's obviously, when you're reading it, there's some sort of deep-seated issue between the two. And you pick that up. Um, and and the, the only reason, uh, from chapter 2, verse 4, that, that passage we just read, the only reason that Mordecai gives for not bowing before Haman is that he was a Jew. And then when you look at uh, chapter 2, go back to chapter 2 and look at verses 5 through 6 when it's describing Mordecai. Um, there's a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite. That, that's important. Because you see um, that Haman doesn't just hate Mordecai, but he also hates Mordecai's people. And, and in 924, you see Haman actually called an enemy of all the Jews. He's an enemy of all the Jews. Um, and so the issue here is there's this feud. There's a tribal feud that's been going on between Mordecai's people, his descendants, and Haman's people for hundreds of years. So, so we see in 2.5, again, Mordecai is from the t tribe of Benjamin. Uh, and the name Kish, that specifically ties him to the descendants of King Saul. Right? So, so King Saul, if you turn to, uh, let's look at this. This is fun. 1 Samuel 15. Maybe you remember this. First Samuel 15, which is the chapter where, where uh, Saul is rejected by the Lord as king. Um, but, but here's what happens. First Samuel 15, 1 through 3. Samuel says to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So that's 500 years even before this, when the Amalekites attacked Israel first. Uh, verse 3, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So the Lord proclaimed to Samuel, and, and through Samuel to Saul, that the Amalekites were supposed to be wiped off the earth. They're supposed to be gone. 
Um, and in, in the following verses, you find out that Saul, in fact, defeats the Amalekites, but he does not destroy them completely. He doesn't destroy them completely. So look at verses 7 through 9. Saul defeats the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So we see here that, um, that, that Agag was the king of the Amalekites. Now, Agag does die brutally <laughs> in the hands of Samuel. If you look at verses 32 and 33 of that chapter, then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Um, so it doesn't end well for Agag. But, uh, but because Saul, because Saul was not faithful in completely wiping out all of the Amalekites, Agag has descendants uh, who, who survive. Uh, Agag does not, but, but he has descendants who, who survive. So because of Saul's failure, this is an interesting connection to that. Because of Saul's failure to obey God completely, 500 years later, in the city of Susa, a bunch of Israelites are now in danger. Uh, the people of Israel are in danger in, because, because of Saul's failure, because Haman... It exists because Saul failed to fulfill uh, the command of the Lord. So Haman knows the Jews, and and uh, and, and Mordecai knows the Agagite. Uh, the hatred runs deep. So there's that issue there. Um, and then another theme. So another theme. So theme number four is is even though I just made a five. <laughs> sorry, it's all the medicine. Uh, another theme uh, is the reversal of human plans. Reversal of human plans. Um, can I just say one? Yes. Just I'm sure you just misspoke a little mm. uh, talking about people. Very possible. You said Mordecai was Esther's uncle earlier. Actually, their cousin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. In two seven, it does. Yeah, say. you're you're definitely right. Oh. Um, it was just kind of. Like, I. It's hard for me to say. <laughs> it's hard for me to think of a cousin watching another cousin. Yeah. Yeah, it does. That is right. Um, you, have you been thinking of that the whole time? Just since we're going down the characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. I think I think I actually said that twice at least. Um, yeah, feel free to correct me. But that, I mean, I knew that. I was just testing you all. <laughs> Debbie's the winner. <laughs> You're going to have an extra outline. <laughs> all right. Uh, so another, 
Another theme is the reversal of human plans, the reversal of human plans. So you see that, that uh, I feel like I, I don't want to just keep rereading all the same stuff, but uh, this is kind of the, the whole fun part of the story. So in like, for example, 6, 1 through 10, um, we saw that where, where Haman is forced to honor Mordecai, that really fun passage. Uh, Haman is forced to honor Mordecai, uh, even though his plan was different going in. To, his plans for Mordecai were different going in to see the king. Um, in 7, 9 through 10, we see Haman then also hanged on the gallows for the, that were intended for Mordecai. Uh, the exact opposite thing. Um, and then, then uh, the, in, in 8, 10 through 13, and really, I mean, that's a good little section of it, but really like 8, 9, and 10, we see the whole, the, the reversal of uh, the intention to destroy the Jews has become now the intention to, or the, the, the edict to destroy the enemies of the Jews. But all the enemies of the Jews would then be thwarted. And so, and that's just a, I mean, the reversal of human plans, that's just a, a great theme overall in the Bible. I mean, gospel type of theme. The, the rever where, where we should be, where we should have headed. Uh, eternal death, eternal separation from God reversed into uh, eternal life and eternal relationship with him. Um, that, that's just always good to see in the Bible. Um, Fifthly, the last, uh, last one I wanted to point out um, is God's sovereign rule over seemingly mundane events. God's sovereign rule over seemingly mundane events. And we kind of talked about this, but, but as, you, as you read through the book of Esther, you just see all of these things that by themselves... Wouldn't don't mean Vashti's decision to, to defy the king. Right? If she'd have just been like, okay, I'll go out there one more time, the story's completely different. Uh, the the king's decision to to hold this contest, Esther being in the contest, Mordecai just happening to be in the right place to hear this um, this this threat to the king right there's I, there's no such in God's economy there's no such thing as just being in the right place at the right time it's always planned a king's the, the king having insomnia not being able to get to sleep right you wouldn't, you wouldn't think of that yeah and it's like, oh, well, yeah and then deciding to have a book of I mean that would help put you to sleep someone come and read me a book of history historical <laughs> records and just different edicts yeah go for it uh, but but then hearing that and and then I mean just the very existence of these proud and self-absorbed leaders the fact that they they, they exist it just plays into the hands of God. And we even see the evil plans of evil men being used in the divine providence of God. We see God working all things 
to his glory, to preserve his promises. And this is just an amazing, it's just an encouraging truth, as I, as I think, as, as you go about your, your day-to-day life, dealing with seemingly pointless stuff, knowing that in all of those things, like, you have no idea. Why, why did that person just, like, it should excite you about life. Knowing that God is at work in every single aspect bringing his plan to fruition. And the only reason that we're not enjoying it, those things, uh, and we're not enjoying those things, those times, as much as we enjoy reading about them in the book of Esther, is just because we haven't seen the end of it yet. Right? So we haven't seen the end of it yet. All right. So that's that's my, that's the end of, of what I wanted to cover. And then if there's any questions or comments or add to it. There's a song I wanted to share that kind of uh, points to the preservation through providence. Psalm 37, 12 and 13 says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at at, at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked and he sees his day is coming. That's perfect. What is it again? So everyone can write that. Psalm 37, 12 and 13. Psalm 37. That's perfect. I should have ended with that.